0: You're listening to After Images, a podcast for cinephiles that takes a deep dive into moving images. Each episode features a special guest who is invited to explore a film of their choice. After Images is hosted by film writers Franck Bouleg and Marisa C. Hayes. Today's episode features a discussion with our guest, Robert Brink on the film Mulholland Drive. Written and directed by David Lynch, the film was released in 2001. Initially conceived as a television pilot, the director transformed the project into a feature-length film after it was rejected by television executives. Mulholland Drive follows the journey of an aspiring actress named Betty Elms in contemporary Los Angeles, where she meets a woman who has amnesia and calls herself Rita. Betty and Rita try to uncover the latter's true identity in a city of dreams ripe with Hollywood directors on the run, incompetent hitmen, and slow-talking cowboys. The film's trajectory through various levels of reality, multiple personalities, film references, and the Hollywoodian quest for stardom, leaves the audience to actively participate in deciphering the film's meaning.
1: Robert Zinnebrink is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Macquarie University, Sydney. He is the author of New Philosophies of Film, An Introduction to Cinema as a Way of Thinking, Bloomsbury 2021. Terence Malick, Filmmaker and Philosopher, Bloomsbury 2019. Cinematic Ethics, Exploring Ethical Experience Through Film, Routledge, 2016. And New Philosophies of Film, Thinking Images. Continuum 2011.
0: Today, we're very happy to jump into the first episode of season two of After Images with our guest, Robert Zinnabrink. Thank you so much for being here today, Robert.
2: Thank you for the invitation. I'm delighted.
0: So we always like to begin with the question, why have you selected the film Mulholland Drive, and what does it mean to you?
2: Okay. Well, a very good question to uh, to start with. I think it's just such a marvellous, powerful film. It was certainly a film that had a huge impact on me when I saw it. And so we're talking 2001. Uh, it was the year I submitted my PhD. It was the year I got married. Uh, it was a real watershed year. And it was probably also... Um, around that time that I was starting to feel very drawn to uh, taking film more seriously, just to give you a little bit of background. Um, You know, in my undergrad days, I actually started as a medical student of all things, and then found that that wasn't really for me. I had been terribly interested in philosophy, so I enrolled as an arts medicine student, started doing philosophy. I loved aesthetics, fell in love with aesthetics, I really didn't care much for logic or analytic metaphysics and so on. Um, But, you know, I was pretty focused as a philosophy student, but I was also terribly interested in film and and creative writing and things like that. So for a while, I was a communication student, got very into film, uh, had been watching films as a student for, for, you know, a long time. And so, yeah, just this sort of convergence of events um, around that time. It was a film that really had an impact on me because I just found myself unable to stop thinking about it. Uh, Or in addition to that, a film where images would recur, you know, at at various points uh, during the day, you just find yourself recalling an image, a very powerful moment from the film. And so this this combination of factors being very interested in perhaps where am I going with my research? After my PhD, I did a PhD in philosophy. Continental philosophy was becoming more interested in aesthetics, certainly in film. And here was this film that absolutely blew me away. I was just uh, transfixed. I I, I was amazed and deeply perplexed and moved. And um, as I said, found myself thinking about the film constantly recurring images coming back. Uh, So, you know, that was saying to me, this film has really affected you in, in, uh, quite a deep and, and powerful way. So I guess out of that experience, I'm to think about well, why, why uh, am I experiencing the film, or what does my experience mean? Uh, what is it about this film that uh, gives it this this power to to get deep into one's psyche, as it were? And uh, so for me, that that started, you know, just in the back of my mind, I suppose uh orienting me more and more towards thinking about film and and philosophy which is what i was becoming more and more interested in and yeah it's an important film for me because it's probably the first film that i wrote about as a film in this kind of you know new phase of my research and career which was starting to think about the film and philosophy relationship so uh, my Holland Drive has a very special place in my heart and my uh, biography, I suppose, because that film. You know, in in discussions with colleagues, you know, we um, uh, I was at Macquarie University already at that time. Uh, we had a little discussion group going, and we I think we had some talks with some colleagues about the film. So it was the start of this trajectory that you know, I guess I'm I'm still uh, on. Which is thinking about film and philosophy in a in a uh, a new way, and yeah, so I, I do credit uh, Mal Holland Drive for uh, a lot of those changes in in, in my perspective and, and my experience, and still find myself again drawn to the film, thinking about about the film, and of course having those images recurring uh, at various times, and, and certainly after rewatching it recently again, uh, I've, I've found the same experience happening. It's happening again. <laughs> <laughs> and,
1: and what is it uh, you think that um, generates such an impact in the film that it leads you to uh, think uh, that that it, it, it leads to philosophizing? What is it? Uh, is it a thought experiment? Uh, what what is uh, is it the aesthetics of the film? Is it the story? Mm-hmm. What what part of the mixture uh, leads to the thinking?
2: Yes. Look, in many ways, it's all of those elements, I suppose. The the thing that, to me, is so striking about Lynch's work, and this film in particular is just exemplary of of Lynch's approach, is the ability to combine conscious and unconscious elements and perspectives. Um, You know, it is a murder mystery at one level, um, you know, in the mode of a a noirish Hollywood drama at at, at a certain level. and, you know, you watch the film and see the first third, two thirds is very narrative driven, you know, and, and stunningly shot and and almost otherworldly. You know, the use of colour, it's so saturated, all those shots of um, Naomi Watts as, as Betty Betty Elms, you know, with this, this extraordinarily um, beautifully lit face, her hair, the eyes, and the sort of colour schemes, and the, her cardigans and the backdrop and so on. So it's deeply rich and satisfying at a kind of sensuous level. And at a narrative level, the mystery is there, sort of drawing you in. But at the same time, there are these darker, you know, um, mesmerizing, even traumatizing elements that are very hard to describe or name. Uh, we're talking here about use of sound, um, what people often describe as the sort of oniric or surreal kind of imagery and moments. Uh, the sort of darker aspects of the story that, that become more and more prominent as, as you go through. So it's that combination, I think, of of both conscious and unconscious elements. I mean, I wrote a piece about the film, I talked about uh, romanticism and, and the kind of uh, idea that the romantics, particularly the German romantics had, that art, uh, genuine art was in, in a sense, uh, capable of transcending philosophy because it provides a means of, of experiencing Something like what the philosophers were trying to think and conceptualize, namely the being or the absolute or whatever you want to call it. Um, but we're able to do so through sensuous means, through imagination and and tapping into the unconscious. So we've got these wonderful uh, descriptions of art, you know, from philosophers like Schelling, uh, where you know art is the um, the ability of the artist is or their genius, if you like, is this capacity to combine conscious and unconscious thinking and expression. In in uh, a meaningful whole, and mm-hmm. and that to me is what happens in Mulholland Drive, mm-hmm. and you know it, it it goes some way to explaining this fascination the film exerts. It's a it's a mystery, we're very drawn into the mystery, and as you know, there are myriad interpretations of the film, sometimes quite conflicting ones, and yet at the same time, it's this extraordinary aesthetic uh, experience that is very hard to describe and to name and to articulate and and operate at deep, affective, even unconscious levels, as well as in imaginative and, and more reflective levels. So I find those two dimensions being brought together mm. in the ways that they are through uh, Holland Drive as a, as a whole, I, I find that really remarkable.
0: Mm. I think that what you're saying really resonates with um, Umberto Eco's concept of the open work, that before he dove wow. into semiotics, et cetera, he was really interested yeah. in this idea of, plural readings and the way that the viewer or the reader can insert themselves into the work. And that also reminded me of your book, New Philosophies in Film, where you're speaking about film philosophy that can be an experience. And it sounds to me like that's echoing some of what you've just said about the romantics notion of of what we can do to, to transcend, for example. And I'm wondering, having written your book, New Philosophies um, on, of Film, excuse me, New Philosophies of Film is the title. I won't bumble that up mm-hmm. anymore. Um, I'm wondering how your relationship to the film has changed. Has it caused you to think about the film in different ways after multiple viewings?
2: Yes, that, that that's a great question. Uh, for me, the, the most... Uh, uh, exciting, challenging, and thought-provoking films in that genuine sense of provoking thought. And I mean, um, not just analysis or interpretation or, you know, using the film to buttress a theoretical or philosophical perspective or or a a favoured theoretical model. I mean, thought as in trying to comprehend understand trying to orient oneself in the world through thinking that's something that some artworks and certainly some films can achieve and uh, for me that happens when one experiences disorientation um when one's not uh fully in control of or able to grasp the meaning of the experience that one's having and so you are forced to think you're thrown back upon thought as a way of trying to reorient yourself in the world. So that to me is what thought provoking in this sort of more emphatic sense means. And that's the kind of you know, cinematic aesthetic experience one can have with a film like Mulholland Drive. So I don't think, you know, in a lot of the film and philosophy debates, um, you, you mentioned thought experiments, um, for example, uh, Mulholland Drive isn't a film that works that way. It's not presenting a particular kind of you know moral, ethical, political situation, or some kind of dilemma that a character has to kind of work through in you know, like a, a moral choice type of dilemma, or or even, you know, although it does touch on the sort of metaphysical questions of appearance, reality, and so on, it's more about an experience. And you mentioned um this this notion of experience and, and a philosophical experience, well, aesthetic experience, which then I think can prompt or uh, invite some kind of philosophical response. And I think that's what's happening. At least for me, that's the kind of experience that, that I find really rich and, and, and quite transformative uh, with a film like uh, Mulholland Drive. So you, you can't quite get a grip on it. And I mean, even that experience of, um, and, and here's where you can think of those, you know, classic aesthetic categories like the sublime. Uh, you 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 can't quite provide a concept or a representation. Even your imagination is kind of pushed to its limits, trying to to comprehend and hold together the film. And we all know, you know particularly those of us who've tried to write about films, and and I'm thinking here of Frank's extraordinary uh, work on Twin Peaks, which is even not just a film, but a whole kind of uh, audiovisual universe, um, how difficult it is to hold, so to speak, in one's mind, in one's imagination. Um, even, you know, relatively short sequences of a film because there is just so much happening, you know. It's it's one of those things you do with your film students who say, show you this one-minute clip, you tell me what happens and we'll see how many errors creep in. And that's not to say you weren't paying attention, it's to say that you experience and recollect film in many ways, like, like dreams, right, which will get us to Mulholland Drive, right? Um, that is... You know, you chunk together things, you reverse all kind of edit, essentially, and give a, a version and interpretation. But these sorts of films, a film like My Holland Drive, you 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 don't have that mastery over the film. You don't have, a la, um, you know, Noel Carroll and David Baldwell, the idea of a narrative that is modeled on, if you like, the practice questions and answers. So, mm-hmm. you know, film the movie poses questions you know um who is uh rita (laughs) Um, what does the money and the key mean right Mm -hmm. um you know um who was really responsible for the suicide at at the end of whoever that character uh, Mm -hmm. turns out you don't have those questions neatly resolved by the end of the film right that sort of classic idea of closure and you know for some filmgoers, that's what makes a film like Mulholland Drive deeply troubling, disturbing, upsetting, uh, frustrating. For others, it's part of the extraordinary experience of a pleasurable disorientation or a pleas- pleasurable cognitive kind of confusion um, and, and, and affective disorientation. That is part of the experience of, of the film, what makes it great. So, so you know, people will vary in, in their... Uh, experiences of the film and and then what they make of those experiences but certainly for me that sense of disorientation of not being able to orient yourself of not being able to fully grasp or comprehend the sublimity uh, of of what you're experiencing uh, through the film that's what prompts certain kind of thinking and I think to my mind that's what uh, uh allows one to say well it is philosophical in a certain sense even though it's not presenting any particular theory or or um, you know philosophical kind of argument or perspective.
1: And th- this is very interesting because we were thinking uh, with Marisa ahead of this interview um, about psychogeography in relationship uh, to Twin Peaks. And when you're talking about disorientation, of course, there is mm. really something about not having your bearings anymore in this, yes. this map. Um, and uh, I-, I was thinking about what you said about the hybrid nature of the film, the fact that mm. it minds, elements, levels of consciousness that are usually kept distinct and um, yes. loses you uh, in this in this realm. Uh, and I would say that it is a bit like what Lynch says when he calls, when he says that there's room to dream, he leaves you room yes. to the audience. Um, so, yeah, um, I suppose my question is, uh, is it the fact that the film loses us, the audience along the way that um, enables it to be so strong uh, in a sense because it does leave you this room to to dream mm. to, sing, to uh to hypothesize
2: yes yes look i think i think that's a really fascinating way of talking about the film um both the idea that it, it leaves this room to dream and I, I love that phrase that lynch uses and it's really interesting um because of course you know, subsequent to Mulholland Drive when he starts making lots of um, experimental um, sort of short videos that he puts up on his website, a lot of the material then, uh, you know, the Rabbits series and so on, that uh, eventually gets worked up in um, Inland Empire, so from 2006, where he's kind of made the shift to digital media. And of course, what's remarkable about Lynch is he's one of these kind of, artists this generation of filmmakers of new Hollywood kind of um generation um just, just as an aside I was um, reading some uh, actually a wonderful um book that's going to come out on Terence Malick and talks there about the I think it was the inaugural class of 69 or whatever um at the newly established film school in 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 LA National Film School and that this class of um new recruits included in addition to Malick um David Lynch and Paul Schrader, as you think Wow, (laughs) that's one hell of a class to have been in. Um, So this generation of filmmakers um, who really put a stamp on, certainly in in American cinema and and obviously more more globally um, as a consequence, uh, and kind of have been talked about in terms of New Hollywood and introducing this more hybrid approach, again, you know, think about the um, relationship to the European art tradition. I, I think that's something that's deeply fascinating about lynch i mean just at a production level as, as you know the story um you know people probably familiar how it was originally supposed to be a television um series right you mentioned twin peaks earlier so uh from mine saying that was the idea you know there was that our pilot that that lynch i uh, made that the abc and it was not back you know that that, that um, apocryphal story about the um, executive getting up at 6am one morning with a cup of coffee, trying to watch the first hour of the they're like, this is awful! And it was canned, right? And, um, yeah, so it's not surprising that a lot of critics have read into the awful experiences uh, that you know, Betty slash Diane has in Hollywood and also the experiences of director Adam Kesher this is no longer your film. Yeah, it's it's tempting not to read some kind of autobiographical dimension in, in, into uh, Mulholland Drive already but um, yeah I mean there is that sort of transition out of uh, the sort of classic Hollywood or even the end of Hollywood Mm -hmm. phase even the end of new Hollywood into something else and to my mind what's so fascinating uh, among other things uh, this the space that the film gives you to to really luxuriate in uh, cinema in that kind of old school sense and of course you know if you watch the first you know Hour of the film, uh, it, as I said, it's remarkably um old school in its compositional style. The dialogue is strangely off as in hokey, corny, some, something out of the 1950s. Um, you know, uh Betty, Betty Elm's even the name that uh, you know, Watts so beautifully portrays, she said I think that she modeled the character, certainly in that first part on a kind of um mashing together of uh, Doris Day and um, Tippy Hedren and yeah so there's this kind of classic old school kind of Hollywood um, actresses and, and style so that's all there but it's also this kind of not just a lament but, but a a critique there's the dark side of, of Hollywood um, and that is much more um, you know deeply explored and and even dramatically uncovered in Inland Empire right which is in some ways a, a kind of a uh, you know a follow on uh from my whole drive so there is that sort of metacinematic level where you know we're, we're drawn into the mystery you know and 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 the characters and and the very confusing um plot developments, but there's also something there about cinema about american cinema and its relationship to the european um art cinema tradition i mean it's no surprise as as the story goes you know the pilot tanked and it was um You know, Canal a studio Canal that stepped in and, you know, basically allowed Lynch the um, resources to to finish the film and make it as a as a film. So you get this sort of hybrid production uh, in even in the making of uh, Mulholland Drive. But I think at at another level, you know, it's pretty clear that the film is also um, probing this relationship between Hollywood and European you know, the sort of grand tradition of European auteur cinema, right? So, you know, there's, there's obvious illusions. I'm taking Hollywood. There's not only a strong Hitchcock dimension there. I mean, I see a lot of vertigo in the film, even down to the sort of shot stylization. And use of like, you know, the um, scene around this um, Sierra Bonita apartments mm-hmm. where um, Becky and Rita are about to uncover the trauma at the core of uh, uh, Rita's, you know, memory loss, not just the accent, but the real uh, trauma. Um, is shot very much in the style of Vertigo, um, even down to that sort of strangely misty filtered light. Um, I think Naomi um, Watts as Betty is sporting a what I would think of as a um, Madeline suit, mm. and that's a nice, great set. So there's obvious allusions there to, to Hitchcock, but there's you know clearly a Bergman persona is referenced at least in, in two quite explicit sequences with the sort of half face on the bed. Uh, but also the two shots of um, you know, Betty and, and uh, Rita in the mirror, where, where she's really just chopped off her hair and put on Dom's the uh, blonde wig. You know, there's I think there's a resonance of uh, Godard and uh, Le Mepri in there as well. So, you know, there, there's lots of to and fro. Um and and at at, at that level, and here I, I think it comes back to this sort of question you asked about the you know philosophical dimension of the film. Um in some ways, well, there's a lot of dream and reality kind of um, ambiguity being explored in the film. We, we can talk about that because that's often the way I think the film is mostly, uh, has been discussed in terms of this dream reality. You know, There's the first part, the dream slash fantasy of the uh, actual events that transpired involving uh, Diane, the Diane character and uh, the dark-haired Camilla Rhodes, mm. uh, Laura and Elena Haring. Um, but, there's another dream level which is much i think broader which is which is cinema itself and i think there's this fascinating um almost a recollection of uh other films you know sunset boulevard obviously um in there as well as films from the um european tradition so so this this whole you know film within a film nesting kind of structure the location setting you know we we not only go from Mulho- Mulholland drive with the trauma the accident but other trauma as it's revealed happens right down to sunset boulevard um you know is 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 very kind of clearly marked so we're in a dream world but we're also within a cinematic dream world Mm -hmm. and within within a cinematic universe so this is where um any attempt to sort of make sense of the film has to be able to sort of drift and move and this is where we need space to dream um uh, drift and move between those sort of more um, explicit, let's say, elements of the, the story, the mystery, uh, but at the same time recognize that we're in this sort of cinematic dream universe that that allows these strange cinematic dreams to happen. And um, in some ways the whole film is such a cinematic dream in a sense.
0: And this might be an interesting moment to bring in the notion of time. I'm thinking Mm -hmm. about something you mentioned in your book, New Philosophies of Film, and the fact that time is this exploration, this area of philosophical thought that hasn't always been uh, applied or related to cinema and its myriad possibilities (laughs) and understandings of time. And I think in this film, perhaps one of the things can join these references to historic films that one may or may not recognize in the film to the very structure of the film itself and this disorientation that you've spoken of, I think regarding time. I'm just wondering Mm. what you you think about discussions of time in relationship to this film.
1: And and, and perhaps, sorry but perhaps to yeah. link this to the structure of the film itself as you said the first mm. part is very linear in a sense yeah. uh, very mm. cause and effect mm. uh, uh, you could the like movement image uh, in the way it is built yes. like mm. the second one turns to more to the time image uh, of deleuze and, yes. and, and 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 is a uh, mirrors the first one in a, in a very deconstructed way
2: yes absolutely i think that this question of time in the film is just deeply fascinating as well, because um, I mean, one of the things the film is about, Now, I I, I think of this uh, film also uh, in relation to say blue velvet and then in that empire. Um, I mean, these are films dealing with trauma as well. um, And particularly around female characters. Right. But as I mentioned, I think there's a, another level of, you know, Trauma is maybe too strong, but another level of, of, of tension and conflict, which is to do with cinema itself and what happens after cinema, cinema after cinema, the digital mm-hmm. transition. But this question of time and trauma involving repetition mm-hmm. and a kind of a, a, a constant revisiting that that one can't fully grasp, and so it requires a constant repetition. So there is that kind of dimension to the to the film, and one of the things that makes it so. So challenging and, and disorienting um, to, to watch is as as you mentioned, Frank, I mean, the first um, you know, let's call it the 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 Betty uh story, the, the Betty Rita um, part of the film is very linear and quite classical in the way it's uh, presented in terms of narrative uh, continuity and structure. I mean, it's a mystery, you know, but we're being drawn further and further in. There are various clues and and then there's certainly a, a narrative momentum and a cause and effect kind of logic that's you know that's at play like quite literally. Um, but one that's curious, because it's all predicated again, as often happens with Lynch films, on messages or insights or intuitions uh, that are unconscious, or let's say derived from the unconscious that one gains access to either through literally dreams or through aesthetic means. Aesthetic experience. And what I mean is, um, I mean, an example, um, when Betty and Rita are, um, I think they're in the cafe, and they see the waitress with the name Diane, the waitress who looks strangely like what we see, you know, Naomi Watts as Diane uh, look like in the latter, mm. third or whatever uh, of the film, The Diana Story. And the name Diana on the waitress's um, uniform triggers this memory. Diane, there's something there, uh, Rita says. I think I remember uh, the name is Diane Selwyn. And just just prior to that, um, they've gone into the diner. It's Winky's, of course. Winky's diner, right? And we'll talk about Winky's diner in a second. Okay. Uh, she's made the telephone call to the police about the accident to confirm that there was such an accident. And the mention of Mulholland Drive, you know, is, is is another kind of clue so we get Mulholland Drive and we get Diane Selwyn so that's kind of again within that still fairly linear kind of narrative structure at that point but even there we're tapping into some other level of intuition or unconscious insight uh, and that's how we get to the Diane Selwyn name and and link that to Mulholland and what happened on Mulholland Drive um so there's that dimension but um There are strange things happening with time throughout the film because, of course, the film starts with this prelude, if you like, which is the jitterbug dance sequence, the strange uh, superimposition of this um, very um, saturated images of a young woman, uh, turns out to be Betty, um, with these um, older grandparent figures that Mm -hmm. we see she meets on the plane and then drive off in the limo, the black limo in this very unnerving, historical laughter kind of uh, mm. scene, who then of course appear in the final psychotic breakdown, suicide, or whatever. Uh, you want to call that scene at the very conclusion of the film. Um, so these things are kind of uh, interrupting that linear flow, that kind of cause and effect logic. And that's what's so disorienting even in the first part. Yes, yeah. Right? That, that we're getting sort of dream-like flashes of intuition insight that, that are yeah. uh, uh, serving as clues to mm. uh you know follow the mystery further and we're also um you know experiencing these um strange interruptions mm. of the, the sort of flow of, of time in, in the film and then of course when one gets to this you know um transitional and uh really crucial moments where let's say the trauma becomes, too close, too apparent, right? Mm. I'm thinking obviously about those scenes where, you know, the, the Club Silencio sequence. Um, here, I mean, here as well, we're, we're, we're no longer in some kind of um, linear sort of time space yeah. set of coordinates, right? Um, and it's very interesting if you sort of track the way the film style works over that first part up, up to let's say the Club Silencio sequence. Um, it, it's like an undoing of that movement, image, causal narrative logic, psychological logic, driving the narrative. It's an undoing of that. It's like an unraveling yes. of of the, the the style and also the structure, um, to the point where, you know, you you literally have um, Rita in a trance, speaking in Spanish, No hay banda, mm. uh, Club silencio, and And by the way, I mean, that to me was such a fascinating sequence, not only because, I mean, it's visually and um, orally quite stunning, but it it taps into what I've always thought of as this sort of dual nature of of the film. And it's set in Los Angeles, Hollywood, City of Dreams, you know, the Dream Factory of Hollywood. But it's also got this interesting um, kind of underside, which is suppressed, which is Los Angeles and the sort of whole Hispanic dimension. So it was really significant that, um, Laura Elena Haring, who ran his half Spanish as well mm. um, you know taps into this in that dream and then gets this message or intuition what have you called silencio that's where we have to go and gets a message so, so this thing in Lynch's films of receiving information intuition insights through either dream like means or through art and in particular music and voice so even in Razorhead, right, the radio lady, or Dorothy Valence in Blue Velvet, or, you know, uh, Rebecca Del Rio mm. in Mulholland Drive, let alone Twin Peaks, right?
3: Mm-hmm. You,
2: you have these moments of that sort of logical, psychologically kind of familiar, causally linked narrative flow mm-hmm. interrupted by these um Aesthetically charged and quite overwhelming moments involving usually music and or song and singing, particularly female vocalists, um, and and that's very striking in um, in Malhondra. It would be wonderful to do a study of the use of female vocalists and song as a means of not just artistic expression but kind of tapping into you know unconscious insights and so on trauma in this case mm-hmm. um, in Lynch's films. It's certainly. Very important in in Mulholland Drive, and that whole sequence, which which we could talk about, I guess at, at length, is is really the the, the sort of key. Um, it mm-hmm. talks somewhere in an interview about the eye of the duck scene. It's this yeah. really important scene in a film that kind of draws together all these elements. It's not a narrative climax; it just kind of pre like, like a constellational effect, draws elements together in a really um, profoundly sort of rich and suggestive way. So that's. The Club Silencio scene in in Mulholland Drive, so so yeah. Even though there are these kind of quite linear sequences, they they do get interrupted, and and we by the end of that whole part of the film, we're now in this dream place, mm-hmm. as as Betty says at one point, and that whole daytime logic of you know linear causality is completely unravelled, and we're now in this this in between space. And I think mm-hmm. for me that's one of the Really challenging features of the film. I mean, I know, you know, just before we were sort of touching on this dreams versus reality kind of structure. And I think, you know, in in broad terms, that does help uh, help one navigate the film and make sense of, mm. uh, in broad terms, what's happening. But really, the film uh, where where it brings you is into this in between zone, mm. uh, this indeterminate zone. And that is part of the disorientation that that can be, I think, aesthetically thrilling and I think philosophically thought-provoking, but also can be very discomforting. And I, I, again, can definitely see why, you know, it's not everyone's cup of tea. Um, You know, some film film goers don't enjoy that experience, but if you do, uh, being brought into this world, into this space, this liminal space, this in-between indeterminate zone between, you know, reality, fantasy, dreaming, between trauma and artistic expression, um, you know, it, it's a love story at its core as well, mm. but a tragic one of love gone wrong, you know, in in, in the most sort of dramatic and and, and violent, and awful fashion. Mm. Um, but it's again this this in between zone that makes it very hard to 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 fully grasp uh, mm. what what it is we're seeing, and 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 that to me is the, again the, the real achievement of the film. Um, but yeah I, I know that that's not always how um, uh, everyone sees
1: it it's a bit like um the, the the red room in twin Peaks, isn't it it's this place where mm. it's suspended. Mm. i mean you're not in time anymore you're above or below time but yes. uh, um it doesn't affect you the same way that it does when you are either in the dream or in reality um mm. it, it doesn't function according to the same laws of physics
2: absolutely and so the remarkable thing is how do you uh, evoke that mood and atmosphere uh, that effectively charged space and sense of time in a movie, such that viewers can experience some of that state themselves, and that that to me is the real thing, um, because it's not just something you um, intellectually impose on the film. Say, like, ah, now now I get it. It's really you know interrupting linear time causality. Etc. Uh, Etc. Cetera, et cetera. It's it's something that has to be felt and experienced, and I think this is where you know, even though Lynch is notoriously, um, you know, elusive and um, you know cryptic and unwilling to, you know, answer interviewers' questions. So, Mr. Lynch, what does the film really mean? Oh, well, you know, it's a love story, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's it. Um, even though he he's notorious for those sorts of very cryptic and um, often uninformative answers. At the same time, um, you know, he does really stress the importance of intuition feeling, um, of being able to apprehend states of experience that are um, in many ways ineffable or very difficult to verbalize and to articulate, that that are temporally, if you like, non-linear, um, and that art, film, can evoke and express and allows to experience these states through. Well, you know, if, if you've looked at some of David Lynch's interviews, he actually says quite a bit on this uh, on this matter. He talks about ideas, uh, and he talks about cinema. Like all that is about capturing ideas. Ideas that essentially have an unconscious source. And you know, as you know, he's very into transcendental meditation, and has you know has written about this extraordinarily rich knowledge from what I gather about. Uh, Huge number of um and and quite idiosynphatic kind of take on uh, the Eastern philosophies and and, Eastern and he definitely has this sort of sense of ideas that are the source of art, artistic uh, creation are um these entities that we tap into via unconscious sources and means. but the whole task of the artist of the filmmaker is to um tune into those ideas and be able to articulate them, you know, in this case, through the cinematic medium, you know, and that involves sound, music, you know, colour, framing, shop selection, you, you name it, all of the, the arts of of cinema. And, and of course, Lynch is not just a director, he's a soundscaper, a musician, makes furniture, I mean, you name it, right? Sort of um, uh, uh, a master of all these um, different arts in cinema. So, yeah. That's that's the really fascinating thing about um uh, a film like *My Holland Drive, that it, it it situates you in that in-between indeterminate in zone. And so of course it raises that question: well, how does the film do that? You know, and, and I think there's um a lot happening with the dissociative nature of image and 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 sound um that that evokes or creates this sense of disorientation that that allows one to experience something of this indeterminate state between, let's say, waking and dreaming or fantasy and reality or, or you know, the unconscious and the conscious self or, or plane of experience. And does so in this incredibly rich and evocative way as part of this, this kind of mystery narrative. So that, that to me is really one of the remarkable things about the film.
0: That reminds me of some of the writing that's come out recently about ideas related to perception and integrating certain indigenous ideas that might've been dismissed before, one that might be described as, instead of saying, if, or saying, and, and, that we don't have yeah. to have this binary between illusion and reality, but that there are states yeah. that are very real for the viewer or the participant, yes. for example.
2: Yeah, oh, absolutely. And and I think, you know, this, <clears throat> this fascinating, I mean, it's, it's always very tempting to sort of, lay a theory on the film say ah now, now I've got it it's it's ideas so that must mean it's Plato or it's Kant or it's Schopenhauer right and it's probably a mishmash of those things but it's also quite idiosyncratic and, and quite distinctive and I do think it resonates with you know uh, different cultural traditions I mean you know as we mentioned I mean Lynch does have a serious interest in um Eastern thought um and you know I think this kind of works its way into his his worldview but also his his cinema and um you know this this idea that um a very dualistic rationalistic representational frame that's directed towards control and mastery of nature and the world is disastrous has has led us to the brink of well you know catastrophe even extinction um i mean if you look at all of lint's films i mean people do um note the uh, you know, the role of violence or of of evil forces and so on um in his films. I mean, I I've for a long time been quite fascinated by this because it's um it's very common, of course, to find violence and evil characters in films, right? Psycho know, killers and serial killers and you know and so on. Um, a lot of films do deal with nihilism and, and the kind of question of meaning in uh, you know, God-forsaken or secular slash post-secular world. And it certainly, I think, is in this kind of tradition. Um, but at the same time, there is this um, sense that that the violence and the, the scale of the narratives that we experience do hint at darker, much broader forces. And, and there is something about... I mean, this film is, I think, more squarely focused on Hollywood and cinema, um, but there's there's definitely a sense of sort of malevolent and violent and even sort of traumatizing underside to Hollywood, mm. um, and you know, more generally, let's say to um, you know the making of of, of movies mm. that we we need to to focus on. We need to acknowledge in some way. Um, you know, it it is. Uh, I mean, there, there there is the dedication of the film to Jennifer Seam, or Syme, I think it was, um, who uh, died. I think it was in a car accident in, in two thousand one. She was a, an extra in Lost Highway, I think, and and various other films. Um, you know, and 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 this sort of story of the um, small time actors trying to make it big and being spat out by the system and crushed. You know, that there's also hints. I mean. Free um, Me Too, you know Hollywood um, harassment. I mean, there's hints of that all over the place mm-hmm. in the films too. That you know this is this is this is the reality behind the dream factory that certainly a lot of young women, uh, young uh, female actresses uh, experience. So there's a lot of that, um, you know, dark side of Hollywood being explored in the films. At the same time, at the same time as, you know, and almost this sort of you know, um I attempt to say kind of yin yang kind of way, as this extraordinary um focus on the power of performance, the mm. power of cinema, the magic of cinema. Mm. You know, so to me, I I can think of a few other films that that um display what we mean when we talk about the magic of cinema, right? And I'm thinking of like the fantastic scene where Betty does her audition. And you know, we we've we, this is a big deal in terms of the plot. She's come to Hollywood. She's going to make it. She wants to be a star. You know, it's the sort of Rags to Riches story. She's got a big audition. She's running around very excited. They do a rehearsal, and the rehearsal is is very interesting because the um, reader character is very wooden. The way she speaks the lines is sort of um, obviously clumsy and you know amateurish, and. Betty's you know, pretty professional sounding right
3: mm-hmm.
2: but okay she's rehearsing for the uh audition turns up to the audition and there's this hilarious cast of characters. it's quite interesting I think that scene when you watch it because there are some um quite comical characters like the director um um Bob Brooker I think he's called um who makes the most bizarre mm-hmm. sort of directorial <laughs> comments <laughs> um humanistic but <laughs> not really uh, you know it just makes no sense and um, so it's quite funny when one knows a little bit about lynch's directorial kind of comments it's kind of funny to see um, bob booker saying these sorts of things and um yeah the woody cats character with this sort of impossibly orange suntan mm. craggy face, kind of old-time hollywood actor so there's a sort of old hollywood school like wall right who's very Generously brought um, Betty into this uh, rehearsal, and then you got the kind of contemporary um, kind of characters. Uh, I, forget I forget the name of the you know sort of top casting agent Hollywood is there with a kind of cool assistant. and They're checking it out, and they're the ones who whisk Betty out afterwards, say, "Oh, I've got a director. You got to meet. He's he's the real deal." No, Wall's never going to make this film. Sylvie knows it's never going to happen. But in that scene, in that sequence, um, George Tolles has written a wonderful analysis of um, Betty's audition scene in Mulholland Drive, just breaking down this. And this is a masterclass of what we mean by the magic of performance in cinema. It's it's absolutely stunning. And in context, all we've seen of Betty, uh, and what's quite brilliantly just plays her as this perky ingenue, a bit Doris Day, a bit, Hmm. bit, um, you know, sort of, up, up for mystery and adventure kind of thing, but naive and, and so on. And she transforms mm-hmm. in this scene uh, and turns what, you know, by her own, again, is a pretty lame script, into this absolutely just jaw-dropping moment of sexual tension, transgression. And so much of it does prefigure the, yeah, transgressive nature of the relationships she's having and also this sort of, you know, I'll kill you, you'll go to jail, and so on. That's prefiguring a lot of things. But just the nature of the performance, the intensity of it is just stunning. And, and in context, you really get this sense of, even though we're, we're being shown a lot of the dark side of Hollywood, the sort of traumatic underbelly and underside of Hollywood, at the same time, there is this recognition of this extraordinary power, this, this force of creative transformation that, that cinema can capture and evoke. And uh, and I think you really see that in, in that wonderful audition thing.
1: And and this, but at the same time, this audition is also uh, showing us a metamorphosis into someone else, which is very, yes, much about yes. a lot of individuality that is at the heart of the film. So yes. what is beautiful is also what is potentially dangerous. Yes,
2: absolutely. And the two are twinned mm. in, in Lynch's work so much. Uh, you know, beauty is about the beginning of terror many of lynch's scenes there's no doubt about that mm-hmm. and um and that idea of um transfiguration of, of uh one's character into someone else is is yeah again taken to even further extremes perhaps in inland empire but is certainly there in uh in mulholland drive and you know really does yeah th- th- this is where the whole mystery the whole discussion around the mystery of the identity of of rita and so to speak the mystery itself of what we make of betty in relation to diane or rita in relation to camilla i mean so much of that is is in some respects encapsulated by what you've just um pointed to which is this idea of uh transfiguration of oneself into another into another character and so in a way um the exploration of identity using the the idea of the act of the performance and and the transfiguration of that via cinema that there's something else that happens uh in the capturing of and you know projecting of uh or screening of a human figure performing acting and becoming someone or something else um you know stanley cavell notes this as one of the um very distinctive features of of, of cinema as a medium and i think that's true you know there is something uh which we all find deeply fascinating in um what happens on screen why some actors are able to evoke an atmosphere a mood a sensibility that is so distinctive so rich so powerful but also protein and malleable can be transformed into different characters and how that happens and and yet we retain this strong sense of the identity of the actor or actress uh, throughout their their metamorphoses into you know uh, however many characters they 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 may portray in their career. So again, there is that that sort of magical um, almost a metaphysical quality to to cinema and cinematic performance, which I think that the film beautifully explores in in some of those sequences, yeah.
0: Gosh, I, I can't help but think of Kenneth Anger in the discussion that we've just had for two reasons. Um, first, mm-hmm. because when we were speaking about this dark side of cinema,
3: mm-hmm.
0: um, when we were just re watching Mulholland Drive the other day, I thought this is almost a visual representation or a case study from his book, Hollywood Babylon, where he really explores yes. his underbelly of Hollywood. Yes. And then at the same time, of course, he's someone who's very interested in magic and cinema and transformation. And we've got kind of two Mm. sides of the puzzle present there. And I know, of course, we're not the first to draw comparisons with Anger's work in relationship to to Lynch. And I think they manifest in subtly different Mm. ways. At the same time, it's really interesting that we do have those two sides there, this very powerful potential of cinema. And at the same time, Mm. it's really potential uh, side for very dark malice uh underneath yeah,
2: well, that's right and and in the middle is the um comic but also sinister world of money of studios of the mafia um, <laughs> uh, so you know it's almost like this threefold kind of structure in a way um and it's it's bringing those elements together in in this extraordinary manner i mean you know of course we we, we have to think of um films like you know um Santia Boulevard or Bad Beautiful*, um, you know eight and a half and, and and so on. there's there's you know such a rich tradition of of meta cinematic kind of movies, movies about movies. And so often you 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 have those elements, you know there's this sort of conflict between you know commercial success and artistic authenticity. There's a sort of corrupt and vain. Quality of the studio slash production sort of apparatus. Um, there's the whole sort of sexual sexual exploitation side as well that's just written into baked into the whole institutional practice as, as, as we as we know. Uh, but that that figures prominently in, in all of those films. Um, but but Lynch just adds this other dimension, which is again hard to describe. It's something like the sort of you know metaphysical dimension. You know, when we um, get to the latter part of the film and the the denouement, such as it is, so the the suicide of the Diane Selwyn character, and then this sort of strange coda, this uh, sequence of images of the, um, the bum behind Winkies, again, mm. returns, which, if Diane had suicided, shouldn't really happen because this is part of the earlier... Sort of sequence that we see the Winky's dream a sequence with the the young um, um, the young man I think I can't remember his name Ben I think it was in the script or something. <laughs>
1: Mr. Todd. Yes,
2: exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, which is which is itself um, fascinating, um, but you know, this recurs at the end of the film. There's the blue box in the paper bag. It falls out, rhyming with the falling of the blue box earlier, when um, uh, Rita actually, blonde Rita, puts the wonderfully triangulate blue key into the box and falls around. And then we get this sort of portal moment into another dimension, let's say, or another world, or a corresponding world. Um, So all of this is happening. And this now doesn't fit into, oh, it's a film about Hollywood. This is going off into some other dimension of meaning of metaphysics of mind of unconsciousness you know you can say but it's certainly no longer within the frame of the more conventional you know hollywood metacinematic film about hollywood right um even though that that is in in many ways what what sort of anchors and 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 gives um substance to to my drive um overall so that that's an element that lynch brings to it and again i think it goes even further uh, in that direction, in something like Inland Empire.
1: I, th- I think it takes us to the Hollywood, not so much as the place itself, but as the the, the star factory. Uh, that is the yes. place where the collective dream is created, but a collective dream that in the process is going to crush so many individual dreams. Yes, uh, yes. Yeah. Um, and, and I was thinking about the the magic of cinema I mean uh, to someone who's never seen a film I mean it could be akin to magic this idea that you can resuscitate uh, people or scenes from the past and, uh, and screen them uh, for everyone Absolutely. to and, and um I was thinking about the, the many moments in the in the film that are reminiscent of fairy tales. I think there is something about a fairy tale dog there too, with magic, with the fact that uh, Adam, um, the, the film director, lives on a castle at the top um, and he's uh, going to marry the princess who uh, is um who That's is right. yeah. she wanted to be. So I, I think that fairy tales are also omnipresent in this world of dreams, of dark, well, nightmares really, I mean, when dreams yes. have power, right?
2: Absolutely, and uh, you, you mentioned um, this link between magic and the cinema and the, the technology of of cinema, and that's that is something that I think Lynch is deeply fascinated by. Uh, not only electricity, I and mean, we could have a whole discussion about the meaning of electricity in Lynch, you know, <laughs> in Twin, let alone Twin Peaks, uh, The Return, but the the conjunction of um, technologies technologies of recording and technologies of capturing and, and reproducing you know, experience um, that are uh, electrical and today digital technologies that both capture and transfigure or transform or allow our experience to be manipulated as well at the same time. It's deeply fascinating for, for Lynch. And there's so many uh, explorations in his work of the use of technologies, recording technology, from the, the phonograph, I mean, the camera, the cinematograph, the phonograph, the tape recording, <laughs> uh, Noaya Banda, um, the idea that recording experience, um, the movie camera, the video camera, the Lost highway uh, and so on. So it's this conjunction between technology that on the one hand, you know, is this um, paradigmatic signifier of modernity of you know secular rationalism of applied science technology making our lives better progress etc cetera, et cetera, that's at the same time linked with uh, through art through the art of uh, moving uh, pictures with this evocation of, 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 of magic of, of tapping into the unconscious of, of transfiguring our experience and uh, allowing us to experience other worlds mm. both uh, literally and and uh, as well as figuratively other worlds and other dimensions of the world that that we're not uh, ordinarily apprised of, and it's technology that allows us, gives us that portal into these other worlds. And you can see that again very, uh, very explicitly in that in empire, but it's certainly all, already, um, you know, present in in Mulholland Drive. Um, and at the same time, you know, although there is this dark side to to those technologies, they do allow us to dream to transfigure. Our experience or reinvent worlds you know and it's really interesting in, in the khan um interview with with lynch one of the things he does say which i think is is, is very illuminating is the idea of cinema being a world mm. so we, we we enter into we literally enter into a world uh when we watch a movie you know and and a lot of theorists film theorists film philosophers have really become interested i think in this idea of films as well so instead of thinking of them as a narrative, you know, film narrative and then you know, interpreting the narrative or understanding the diegesis and, you know, or questions of production or stylistic techniques. Thinking about cinema as a world, uh, you know, and, and especially a, a rich and evocative and, and mysterious world, such as we find in uh, Mulholland Drive, uh, gives another angle, another perspective, another portal into understanding mm-hmm. uh, the art of cinema, you know, to think about it as a world. And that, that's certainly how how I you know understand um, my Holland Drive, if you like, is, is as a world. Um, and of course, one can never fully get the measure of a world. <laughs> that's the whole point. There's always background dimensions to a world, um, which are the precondition of our having a perspective and being able to engage with and make sense of our being in the world, if you like. Um, you know, in practical terms, but we can never fully get uh, a god's eye view of a world. And that that's I think just sine qua non. for for Lynch that that's we always have a partial perspective and experience on our worlds and certainly the worlds of cinema that that he uh, invites us into uh, give us a very rich sense of how partial our perspectives can be you know and yet at the same time we have an intuition of there being something more something greater uh, a whole that somehow encompasses us
0: yeah, exactly. We were going to ask what you think about this notion of an entire filmography as a world, especially in the case of Lynch, um, because we were speaking about, in addition to the production background mm. of Holland Drive and the fact that it may have initially been imagined as a spin off of Twin Peaks, yeah. and it certainly came about at the mm. same time as Twin Peaks, so one might uh, extrapolate. Mm. There, was a lot, there were a lot of references to Twin Peaks in mind during the creation of Mulholland Drive. And then we see the presence of the characters, Laura Palmer and Ronette Pulaski uh, in the Silencio Theater. I know. am just wondering what you think about this idea of demography yeah. as a world <laughs> and distinguished oh. visual titles.
2: I'm really glad you raised that, pardon me. Um, this uh, wonderful bit of information about about Club Silencio and the fact that there are, you know, such uh, hugely important, significant figures as Laura Palmer and and, um, and Pulaski in that space is is extraordinary. I, of course, like most viewers, you know, we, we're talking about when was the film released? 2001. I mean, um, and, until you got the, the DVD and then if you were to do freeze frame, then you could have a look. Of course to the naked eye, so to speak, for the, um, you know, uh, cinema goer in the wild, actually watching the film as it was unfolding, you 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 simply wouldn't wouldn't kind of crash. Perhaps you could intuit some of that. And I know you've been very interested in the use of superimposition in Lynch's work, which I think is actually really fascinating area. The the other area that links with that is of course the soundscaping and the use of various, you know, subsonic and other tones. I mean Lynch has just got an amazing relationship, not only with Badlamenti as a composer, you know, the late Angelo Badlamenti, but also with just the art of soundscaping, which again has become a huge topic of interest in people interested in theorizing cinematic worlds, right? Because these are audiovisual worlds, not necessarily visual audio worlds. So the sound is incredibly important. But the idea of uh, a world being linked as worlds are in 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 a constellation, a universe, is, of course, super fascinating and you know certainly when you think of uh, twin peaks of return which i, I know you and, and frank are uh, consummate um, you know connoisseurs of uh, that world um it's hard not to think of a universe a kind of constellation of worlds where there are there are these non-local lo- lo- localizable links between different dimensions of these worlds and so the idea there could be some strange topological resonance or connection between, let's say, the um, the worlds of Blue Velvet, Mulholland Drive, and that Empire, uh, Twin Peaks, papers, even going uh, the other direction, you know, Lost Highway, and, 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 and Razorhead, and so on. I mean, it makes a lot of sense in, in a way because there are these. I mean, and I, I find that a more satisfying or or in, in enlightening way of thinking about. Uh, a filmmaker's body of work than the more traditional sort of auteurist kind of um, approaches, you know? And again, I mean, all of those um, theories, as you know, were were in large part still part of that that old debate, which goes right back to the very, very early days of cinema, is cinema an art? (laughs) Or is it just a clever technological gimmick, you know, canned theater kind of thing? Um, Which, you know, has kind of returned in an odd way um, when the digital revolution, began you know and all those old questions were suddenly new you know what is the ontology of the digital image what's the uh, you know what aesthetic features is there a distinctive medium or is it just film you know by by other means uh, that we're dealing with now um so all those questions have, have become new again um but this idea that you think about uh film worlds communicating with each other and having resonances and sort of exchanges or, or connections with each other, I, I find that that really fascinating, and it does it does add another dimension to, to one's uh, experience of these films. Because as I mentioned before, the, the the striking thing for me about that film is how it operates at these levels, hmm. not only call it the sort of more overt, such as it is narrative level of you know the story of Betty and Rita and, um, and Diane and Camilla, and, and what happens but also at a cinematic level with history of cinema and so on. But then one should include with, within that uh, account some relationships that are clearly being um, worked through uh, with regard to Lynch's other films. You know, and I mentioned before just the, the motif, let's say of the the, the female performer, the singer,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, which I think is, is, is really important in, in Lynch's work, really fascinating. Um, so one can think about connections um, at that level, um, <clears throat> you know, and and there are a host of others. Um, the cars, <laughs> use mm. of cars mm. in in his films, um, chases, um, doppelgangers, uh, doublings, <laughs> you know, the, the the list goes on. Um, but yes, thinking about resonances between worlds and how these worlds intercommunicate, and and in a way that's that's sort of quasi independent of of lynch as auteur i think that's that's important too because you know i think the traditional way of thinking about it is, oh we have these uh, amazing auto artist uh, filmmakers directors like lynch say with his signature motifs and his body of work and development and so on and you know hermeneutically i mean it still makes sense like when i teach mm-hmm. uh film to students you know it's even though you you say well of course this is an outdated way of thinking about film but then we talk about a Hitchcock film, or, oh, this is late Hitchcock compared with, and, and so on. So we, it's hard not to use some of that vocabulary and some of that way of thinking, but it's not enough. And and certainly uh, for thinking about Lynch's work, yeah, the idea of intercommunication between worlds and the idea that there's a kind of a Lynchian universe. I mean, with Twin Peaks Return, as, as you um, showed, I think, quite uh, magnificently in your book, Frank, there are so many levels mm. of, you know, Intertextual uh, resonance and allusion and, and um, connection uh, occurring in, in uh, Twin Peaks, um, as well as you know references to other Lynch works, uh, that it's, it's 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 quite mind-boggling, you know. But but I think that's kind of consistent with with the way Lynch talks about film and these ideas that they that they connect that they resonate. So if the ideas are not conceptual. In, in the way that philosophers might think about it, is ah, oh, well, you mean concepts,
3: hmm. Hmm. You know, some,
2: some notion uh, of an intellectual kind, representation, intellectual um, idea, and these are um, affective aesthetic ideas that are sensuously perceived. You know, which a number of philosophers have talked about. You know, you think of um, Schopenhauer, Melaponti, and, and and others. Hmm. Um, you know, but but they communicate; they have relationships. In the same way that concepts or conceptual ideas have relationships, so too do, let's say, cinematic or audiovisual ideas have relationships. So it would make sense to think that these ideas and combinations of them recur in, in various forms uh, across different films and communicate with each other across different Lynch films. Uh,
1: sorry. <laughs> no, I, I would argue that uh, his worlds are, um, are are very much like clouds uh, I've got the feeling that they are a bit fluctuating and moving in space and that there's a certain yes. of undec- undecidability as to their mm. borders, uh, as to is it Lynch or is it uh, Hitchcock through Lynch or, I mean, there's yes. a bending of all of this that is continuously mm. taking place and this made me think about what you said concerning the point of view and the perspective that one has in his films that uh, the camera mm. is basically cutting a slice of the world and showing us this portion of the world but not what's outside and linking this to the use of sound which is much more world yes. because it is um, all around you and uh, it evokes things that you don't see that you can't quite name um, like um, acoustic music in a sense you know this idea that yes. you have those elements you can't exactly understand what they are but they are there and they're going to influence you nonetheless.
2: Absolutely yes and combining the, the the sound and the music and the, you know, the soundscaping with, with the uh, the visual dimensions to to create a sense of world is, is just so important. And certainly Lynch is a, is a master of that. I mean, I think of that amazing scene in, in Blue Velvet, like early on, um, where, um, Jeffrey's father has the heart attack. he's kind of watering the lawn, heels over, has a heart attack, dogs there nipping at the jet of water coming out from the, uh, it's at a very <laughs> weird phallic moment, and um you know the 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 sound in that sequence is so terrifying, right that it just it just heightens the sort of mm. I mean, what happens in literal terms is 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 sad, but it's not this deep, dark, traumatic event. And then later, when um uh, Jeffrey uh, stumbles across the ear, you know the the famous scene of the camera and and th- this is something again, really um interesting in Lynch's work I mean we can talk about the um the way uh the camera or the let's say cinematic perspective um varies and how it's deployed in in certain scenes it's, it's very distinctive and sometimes very unusual so in the blue velvet scene where we go in, into the ear uh as as it were and this sort of portals so the camera going into a portal into an ear or in the case of um blue velvet literally into the black box, the Pandora's box, uh, the the heart or kernel of the trauma, um, and then entering another dimension or another world. That comes up again and again, you know, and in the blue velvet scene, it's this fascinating use of sound where we keep going further, further into the lawn, into the the earth, the worms, the bugs, and that squelching sound is just kind of visceral and kind of disgusting and fascinating at the same time. And, and that's how you generate this sense of immersive, affective, bodily involvement. I've, I've become very interested um, recently, stuff I've been looking at, um, drawing on German um, neo phenomenology about atmospheres and the idea that, um, you know, we, we can talk about feelings, motions, even affects, but we, we also need to talk about atmosphere as this sort of quasi, uh, neither subjective nor objective in the straightforward sense, but occupying this 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 in-between zone or space as as a, as a felt space so lynch himself talks about this you know the atmosphere when you enter a room like film can express that so it's not just a subjective feeling mm. it's not just something objective about the space it's this lived bodily experience of the attuned nature of the space the attunement of the space the stimmung if you want of the space that you can Recognize. You can feel it. You can sense it. Uh, it may be difficult to pin down and describe, but the experience itself is very concrete and palpable. Even though our language for it is fairly ambiguous and a bit rough, um, but that's where cinema comes into its own. And I think that's why Lynch insists on, you know, the 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 language of cinema is is very distinctive and expressive. Um, cinema can use abstractions, ideas, and communicate feelings, emotions, states of mind, moods, atmospheres that we find otherwise very hard to verbally articulate. Now, I think that's being one hundred percent sincere. He's not just, you know, trying to obfuscate or, or impress uh, interviewers. Um, it's it's generally part of the the process and and the the kind of art of cinema as as he sees it and practices it. Uh, so that, that idea that we're entering worlds that have this atmospheric quality. I mean, one of the things that um, moved me about uh, Mulholland Drive that I wanted to write about was was the use of mood and the, the role of mood um, and how, you know, in, in some sequences, mood becomes all-encompassing, all-enveloping. It, it, it kind of saturates the whole space, the whole, you know, meaning of what we're experiencing in, in a sense, and Club Silencio, right? That, that whole sequence, for example, is just extraordinary in, in those terms. Um, and, and that's what, you know, a film like Holland Drive can really make one experience that this, you know, mood is normally something just in the background that orients us in the world, you know, we, we're never without mood, moodedness uh, as a way of orienting ourselves practically, but also, you know, cognitively in terms of doing and, and thinking but we're not normally that conscious of it unless something's going wrong like we're feeling depressed or down or you know or hyped up or what have you but what lynch's films can do is is turn that around so that the mood becomes all enveloping and even overwhelming mm. and and i think you really experience that in in, in some of the um sequences in in my drive and so it becomes hard to really pin down you know, people say it's dreamlike or it's nightmarish or it's surreal. It's so all of those things, but that's more a, a, a grasping you know, for language that will help us articulate that experience of, of, of very distinctive but, but quite ambiguous, hard to describe moods. Hmm. And he is really uh, one of the most remarkable filmmakers for evoking mood, I, I would say, and, and certainly uh, in uh, Mulholland Drive.
1: Um, it's not a question, but I'm uh, talking about mood and atmosphere. This makes me think that it would be very interesting to do a meteorological study of the films of mm-hmm. Lynch. I think there's really something of a yes. reference in the environment and what's happening in the in the people. And um, I mean, and yes. but, um, also, of, of course, from the point of view of the sound, it's almost like sometimes, as when there is a storm coming, you can see the pressure of the air getting stronger. Yes. Change the way you feel and your emotions
2: absolutely i mean lynch talked about um you know arriving in los angeles and this light you know this sort of west coastline and linking the light with los angeles and the landscape and the feel the mood the sort of sense of possibilities and so on. and you know that that comes across you know betty arriving in la is this, this dazzling kind hmm. of experience the light is just magic and everything glows everything is is just cranked up a bit more bright and vivid than ordinary reality generally is, and that's so in keeping with the mood, the, the you know the, the kind of stimmung or vibe that uh, those scenes evoke, and that the character, the, the world that that they are both expressing and um, you know inhabiting. In, in, in the case of Betty, as this aspiring young young actress you know, wanting to make her dreams come true. Um, and, you know, so much of that, again, is linked to the sounds, linked the, to the music. I mean, Lynch's ability to use music. I mean, I'm very interested, for example, in, I mean, this, obviously the the fascination with the 50s and tapping into some darker um, tone in what, you know, stereotypically is described as the very sort of naive or wholesome kind of, you know, uh, white picket fence image of the fifties, and as we know, Lynch is the master of so subverting that and showing that there was actually this dark time. And you think of Roy Orbison's music, Roy Orbison's songs, which, at one level, are just just you know beautifully crafted, beautifully written, beautifully performed songs, but always carry this dark mm. pathos, this note of melancholy or of despair of loss. Mm. You know? Much of his work is. Yeah, not only in his personal life, but in his um, uh, musical compositions, um, dealing with, with pain and, and and loss. And so Lynch is able to sort of tap into those qualities of mood in those songs and then turn them inside out and then detour them or, or kind of transform them in, in new contexts. So, you know, um, the, the extraordinary um, um, In Dreams, uh, I Walk With You sequence in... in um, Blue Velvet Um, but also the the use of the 50s music in um, the Sylvia North story the film within the film that's being filmed Um, and then you know various other sort of scorings of fantastic pieces of music for you know um, let's say when Adam Kesha comes back to his uh, Hollywood home and discovers his wife in bed with Billy Ray Cyrus (laughs) which is very comic and kind of but but shocking too, right? It's it pretty pretty nasty, pretty violent. Um, but the, the use of music in in those sequences, so there's a sort of comic and ironic effect. But but there's also this, yeah. There's always this kind of ability to tap into other moods that that aren't so much on the surface, but that the music can bring out. And that, of course, I mean the the absolute pièce de résistance there is Rebecca Del Rio singing the Spanish version of Roy Orbison's "Crying," mm-hmm. um, "Yorando." And doing doing it in a way which just you know, uh, I, I can't imagine uh, a film girl watching that not being moved to tears or moved profoundly, um, not only by the performance but then what it signifies in context of that scene for mm. um, Betty and and Rita. So yeah, just an absolutely stunning um, fusion of elements, of the music. Of the soundscaping of the mise scene the lighting, the colour, uh, you know, it's just, it's just incredible.
0: I have the feeling that we could do a whole series of podcasts on Mulholland Drive with you, <laughs> but it seems like it might be yeah. a place to end for today, but we usually like to conclude with one final question which is, mm-hmm. is there something you wish that we had asked that we didn't?
2: Oh wow, okay. <laughs> Well, yeah. Look, uh, something like you know, some people say, "Yep, you can work out this film if you are, you know, focused, diligent, carefully, uh, you know, analyzing all the different parts of the film, you know, and 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 you can get to the bottom of it." Lynch himself claimed that there is a story there you can you can piece it together, and then another school of thought said, "No, that's totally the wrong way to do experience behind." You just go with the flow it's this oniric kind of dream cinema vision this experimental avant-garde what you just go with it don't interpret don't make sense stop making sense that's mm-hmm. not what it's about so um you know maybe i can throw it to you what do you think because <laughs> yeah i'm somewhere um in between um you know and and a bit undecided
1: yeah, uh, I'm like you. I guess I, I like both approaches. Uh, and I think that, once again, it's not a question of either or, it's a question of and. And I think that uh, they can function together, that you can both um, take pleasure in the ineffable in the film while at the same time trying to make sense of some of its elements. Um, Yes, I mean, um, reason is not necessarily opposed to emotions and that they can coexist and uh, function uh, simultaneously.
0: Well, in my own writing, I write a lot about abstract experimental films. So I guess I'm much more of an open work kind of girl. Um, I don't really feel that I need a narrative thread to follow. Um, But I think what's interesting is that there is some loose, maybe we could say, Um, this but also that. I'm a big fan of Susan Sontag's friend this but also that. And I think there are many different threads that one can pick up that are really interesting and that do have some narrative structure in the film. And yet it's loosely woven enough to leave that space that I really Mm. relish in um, uh, Room to Dream. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Absolutely, no, I would definitely agree. And we should should certainly follow that up, that thought uh, further with, um, yeah, some more discussions. That would be great.
1: It would be a great you. pleasure. Yeah. Um, thank you very much, Robert, for having uh, accompanied us tonight and uh, being uh, our guest on uh, After Images. It was a great pleasure to hear your thoughts about Modern Drive.
0: Yes, thank you so much.
1: Well,
2: thank you very much for inviting me. And yes, it was a real pleasure for me too. So I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you.
1: And the best way to end this podcast is probably to say silencio. Silencio.
0: Thank you for listening to After Images. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow After Images podcast on social media.
3: After Images.